can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Lord willing, we will cover verses 28 through 30 today as we continue through John's Gospel. And so I would at this time ask you, if you're able, to please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We will read it together, these three verses, and then pray and begin working through them. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, I thank you for this day and this time you've given us to gather around your word, to hear and remember once again the words of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would strip from us any wrong ideas, any presuppositions we're tempted to bring to your word. Father, that you would take from us any inclination to think wrongly about you. And that you would grant by your Holy Spirit a right understanding of these things. Father, that you would bring true conviction that we would rejoice to see what your son has done and what he has said and what it means for us. Father, I pray that you would guard me from misspeaking. Oh, Father, do put your hand over my mouth if I would go astray. Lord, I come to you completely and totally dependent on you. And I ask that you would fill us with your spirit and power. Help me, O oh God, to speak with authority and clarity. Subdue our hearts. Captivate our affections. Father, that we might worship you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this particular message is a question. Is it finished? Originally, and you'll probably find in your bulletin, the title is, It is Finished. And certainly it is, and that's what we're going to look at together today. But it just strikes me as compelling how often we're tempted to, in light of the world in which we live and our own experiences, to not exactly live practically as if Jesus did finish it once and forever. And so I want to ask and consider our text today in light of that question, is it really finished? And what does that mean? In recent weeks, we've been in John and we've seen all the way back months ago when we started John chapter 13, we saw Jesus' ministry towards the disciples. And we've been watching for some time now the selfless way in which Jesus determined to spend His last fleeting hours on the earth before His crucifixion. And as you'll recall, we first saw Jesus pouring His heart out in ministry to the disciples whom He loved. Having loved them, He loved them to the end, we saw. Pouring it out, promising them the Holy Spirit. He's not going to leave them without comfort and encouragement. And then we went on from there to see Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where He prays on behalf of His people, 
that they would be preserved and that they would know perfect unity with the Father and with one another. And remember, that wasn't just for those disciples then. Jesus was praying on our behalf that we would know perfect unity with the Father and with one another. And we went on from there to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as his soul was troubled before the Father over the cup of wrath he was coming to drink. And yet we saw him commit fully to go and drink it. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And then we went on to consider his betrayal from Judas and his arrest and the subsequent trials by unjust and wicked men. And then most recently, we looked together at Jesus dragging his own crossbeam through the valley of humiliation before being nailed to the cross and publicly portrayed as a guilty criminal. And now here today in our text, in verses 28 through 30, we arrive at the point to which all this has been leading. We arrive at his actual death. And what a wonder it is that the entire Christian gospel can be reduced down to our three verses today. Paul, in talking to the church at Corinth, says, There's one message I had for you. I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And here in our text today, we see the culmination of that crucifixion in three verses. And seeing that it was finished. Now there's no end to the applications which we could consider and make together in light of these verses. How much heresy in the church today could be completely silenced if we only got hold of this statement, it is finished. How much doubt and despair do you believe as a Christian could be avoided if you only came to grab hold of this victorious expression from Jesus? How much tension and worry could be avoided? What confidence, what conviction might Christians have as witnesses in the world if we grabbed hold of this? Jesus said it's done, it's finished. That's a statement of victory. That's a statement of accomplishment, of certainty. What would it look like if you and I as Christians in the world were to go forth with the kind of confidence that we ought to have in light of Jesus' words today? What greater appeal could possibly be made to an unconverted soul than Jesus Christ saying it is? is finished all doubt all uncertainty removed by that statement and you see the looming and the eternal question which i'm seeking by the grace of god to put before you today is this is it really finished has jesus really accomplished it already completely and totally you see what is set before us now is a message of absolute certainty if what Jesus Christ tells us today in this text, if it's true, then there can be no question at all about the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It is either finished or it is not. There's no other options. Either Jesus finished it or there's something else left for you and I to do. And the only question for you to answer is this. Are you going to believe the words of Jesus here today? Are you going to take what he says and bank your soul on what he says? Are you going to rest on His Word and cling to them as the words of life or not? As we're confronted by the Christian Gospel again and again and again, let me ask, are you compelled with thoughts of what yet you must do? Are you compelled to marvel at what has already been done? And so my charge in the introduction is this. As we look at these things together, be compelled to come and drink and live from the one who thirsted and died.
That's my opening thoughts. And so with that, we move into our text. John 19, verse 28. We read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. The first expression I want to look at with you is, After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished. The first thing we need to be aware of in this verse is the omniscience of the Son of God. There was nothing outside of the realm of His understanding as it related to what He came to do. We read Jesus knowing that all was now finished. Now, of course, there, were, there are verses in the Bible that tell us Jesus Himself, He declares a kind of veiling of information. At times He says, no one knows save the Father, not even the Son knows. And that's as pertaining to things which are yet to come in the future. But as it related to what Jesus came to do, He knew everything perfectly down to the smallest jot or tittle of what He came to accomplish. There is nothing lacking in His mind as it pertained to His mission in the world. He says, knowing that all was now finished. Think on it this way. What if Jesus was wrong about that? What if Jesus assumed or believed that everything was finished, but there was one thing over here hidden in the dark that Jesus was not aware that actually wasn't done. One necessary thing for Him as the Messiah to have accomplished And he forgot somehow to do it. John would have us to know with perfect certainty and clarity that Jesus Christ was fully aware of what was required for him to save us. And that he would not stop. He would not die until all was finished. He was leaving nothing undone. I submit to you that Jesus would have remained on that cross and would still be there if all had not been finished before he died. He was free to die, to make the proclamation it is finished and give up his spirit because it was all now finished. And he knew that it was. So the next thing we come to ask in light of this, all was now finished, is what exactly did he mean by all was now finished? What specifically was he referring to? Now, Obviously, Jesus hasn't died yet, and that was necessary. It was necessary that Jesus die and he's still alive. And so that aspect of what he came to do had not been finished yet. And also we know the full scope of God's purpose in the world has not yet been realized. All was not finished. The church had not been built yet. Not every one of God's elect have entered into the kingdom of God yet. Furthermore, Jesus Christ had not died and he had not been resurrected from the dead yet. The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on Pentecost. And even in the immediate context, we find Jesus fulfilling Scripture with His next words. To fulfill the Scripture, He says, I thirst. But before He fulfilled that Scripture, He says, all was now finished. What is He referring to? How can it be that there are yet things that are going to happen, and yet He says, all was now finished? Or you can look ahead to verses 36 and 37 and see more things that are going to be fulfilled after this happens. And yet it says that all was now finished. He says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. John tells us in verse 36 and 37 that there are things, his bones not being broken and them looking on him whom they have pierced. Both of those things were fulfilled on this day after he died. And after he says, all was now finished. So I'm asking, what does it mean when Jesus, when it says of Jesus that he knew that all was now finished? What exactly was finished there? Well, consider it this way. Matthew 3 and verse 15. 
But Jesus answered him, speaking to John the Baptist, Jesus has come to John and and requested him to baptize him. And John says, no, you should be the one baptizing me. And Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, being John the Baptist, then he consented and baptized the Lord. Consider from Isaiah 53 and verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. What a fascinating verse from Isaiah 53. John's telling us Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. Isaiah 53 says, and by his knowledge, by his knowing, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He's fulfilling all righteousness. What's finished, what's completed, what's absolutely done and full is Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. And we find from Luke 24 and verse 26, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with these two doubtful disciples of his. He asked them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here, as Jesus is suffering on the cross, fulfilling all righteousness and suffering in order to fulfill what he came to do. Here's the argument. What is it that was all now finished? The substitutionary work of Jesus Christ demanded that he fulfill all righteousness. He had to be perfect. He had to be a sinless lamb in order to be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he might credit his righteousness to our account. Have you ever thought about this? If Jesus Christ goes to the cross and dies and absorbs and suffers under all the wrath, the fierce hatred of God that you and I deserve, if we're forgiven of our sin and we have no positive righteousness, we have no place with God in his kingdom. There is a positive righteousness given to us. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not only the doing away with sin, but it requires something positive. Jesus finished. He accomplished all righteousness before the fall. In addition to this, he had to bear the punishment for our sins in himself as though he were the guilty one. It was now finished. He has borne our guilt in himself in his own body on the tree. First, John 410 tells us this. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you know what the word propitiation means? Propitiation is the idea of a double satisfaction. We even can look at that and we'll consider at the end the satisfaction we're told about in Isaiah 53. Here's the picture. Jesus Christ taking our sin. Here's double satisfaction, double imputation. He takes our sin on Himself. It's accomplished. It's finished. Our sins on Him. And He takes His righteousness and clothes us with it. The propitiation for our sins. Giving us His righteousness. So that when we read this statement, all was now finished, it meant that Jesus had truly fulfilled all righteousness. He had suffered and endured the wrath of God against Him, and there was nothing left undone which He was required to do in order to pay for our sins. There was nothing left for Him to do. Consider it this way. John 6, 38 and 39. Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
So when Jesus says knowing, when it says knowing that all was finished, he's saying the assignment he had received from his father was completed. That which the father gave him to do was guaranteed and finished. That's what he's saying. He says to us in John six, I've come down from heaven to do the will of my father. And this is his will that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is saying he knew that he had accomplished everything necessary in order to receive and save those given to him by the father and not only receive them, but raise them up on the last day. And so in light of what we read in Isaiah 53, we might conclude that Jesus perfect knowledge of the completion of his intended work prompted him to do two final things. Everything's accomplished, but these two things to declare it done and to actually and really die on that cross. But but before you and I begin our shouts of jubilee, our celebration at the statement, it is finished. Do we actually appreciate what this means for us? Whenever we say that Jesus accomplished all righteousness as our substitute dying on the cross, do we have a real conception of what that means? I think maybe perhaps we're too quick to rush past the statement. All was now finished without first measuring ourselves by it. So what if all is now finished? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? How is it that that benefits me? Why should I rejoice to hear that all is now finished? What impact does this really have upon my own life? When I look upon my life, do I find that it is one which has been lived according to the will of God? When Jesus says all is now finished, it's telling us he actually has done that which was pleasing to the father. The father looks on him and says, behold, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Would God say that about you and I? Here's one. If he looked at your life, he would say everything you've done without exception is pleasing in his sight. And perhaps we're even quick to say, well, no, obviously we're all sinners. And yet that does not bother us in the way that it should. You see, there is a sense of finality of certainty and security before the face of the Almighty in what Jesus is accomplishing. And my question is, can you and I even begin to say that our life is one which has finished or accomplished what God expects of us? Have we been humbled and brought low before God? When you read of all that Jesus is enduring here with the shame and the death and his dying and what he's accomplishing do you see in your soul that should be me on that tree? Have we been humbled? Have we seen that our filthy rags of our own tattered lives have accomplished nothing for us except the expectation of divine judgment? Can we say with Jonathan Edwards, you remember this quote? The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. When you see Jesus dying and accomplishing everything the father gave him to do, do you look at yourself and say, I've accomplished nothing that the father's given me to do in my entire life? It's all been rooted in self and sin and desires for that which pleases me and not him. And he says he accomplished and fulfilled everything the father gave him. Not I. I was reminded in study of the line from the song we've sang a few times, O love. That will not let me go. The line goes, O cross, that liftest up my head. I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And from the ground, there blossoms red life that shall endless be. 
This is the point. Apart from the cross, I'm in the dust and all the glory of my life is vain and it leads to death. And I'm looking up and it's only the cross that lifts my head up. It's only what Jesus did that allows me to be able to say there's something pleasing to the father in me because it's been finished in him. That's the message. And the charge is that we stop for a moment and come to see the utter hopelessness and futility of our own vain attempts to please God according to our own efforts. That we might sing these songs, these lines with joy and with glory because of Christ who says all was now finished. And we press on the next part of this expression in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Now, that's a line that you should recognize repeatedly in all the gospel accounts, but especially John is this expression to fulfill the scriptures. We've seen this again and again and again. Something happens. Jesus does or says something and we're told that's fulfilling the scriptures and something which John is absolutely committed to in his gospel account is to declare to us that Jesus Christ is the one to fulfill every single scriptural requirement of the Messiah. And it's not merely a head nod to the fact that the plan of God is unfolding, though it's included in that. And perhaps it's wrong for me to use the expression merely. But the fulfillment of the scriptures, what is this telling us? The reality of fulfilled scripture is a recognition of the fact that the Christian gospel is rooted and grounded in literal history. This is a historical message, a historical faith. We don't gather in this place as we are now simply to talk about things we believe to be true or not. We're talking about something God has erupted into time to accomplish. This is history. This is fact. We find that Christianity is not only a belief system of ideas or theories or philosophies. Christianity is a declaration of historical fact. And the constant appeal throughout the New Testament of fulfillment of Scripture is a declaration to you and I that God has actually done something. You see, Jesus has not only informed us of some abstract or esoteric ideas. Something has literally taken place so that we can find Paul saying in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Here's the point. God promised this Messiah, this seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head all the way back in Genesis 3. And we find in the Scriptures in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Jesus was going to this cross. We see him dying on today before the world even began. And what we're told is that though it was as good as done in the mind of God, he actually came into the world, into time to accomplish it. When we say the gospel, the good news, we're saying not an idea, not something we hope for merely, but something that's good news in history that's actually taken place when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. And so in this text, to fulfill the scriptures, what is the particular fulfillment which we see taking place in our text today? We see Jesus saying, I thirst. The first thing we notice about this expression, he's dying on the cross. He says, I thirst is the physical strain which would have been upon Jesus Christ hanging there. No doubt the physical exertion that he endured dragging his own cross 
out of town, wore him out. No doubt the labored breathing and shortness of breath was contributing to a dry mouth and a limited ability to speak. As I understand it, this was a common thing to happen during crucifixion. Someone who's straining for every breath, it causes them to develop a dry mouth and a, and a, and a difficulty even putting words together. But these things are in fulfillment of as we heard in the call to worship, Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so I believe there must have been a literal and physical longing for thirst to be quenched in accordance with the fulfillment of the scriptures. There was a real thirst pertaining to physical liquid on the mouth and in the throat. And yet, could it be that this expression of thirsting is directing our attention to something infinitely more? Is there something more about Jesus, the Son of God, saying, I thirst? Is there something more than just physical relief in his dying moments? Think on this. We're reading verse 28, I thirst. Two verses later, verse 30, gives up his spirit. He's dead. Are we really to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty incarnate, is so distraught by a physical need on his tongue that seconds before he dies, he's craving and desiring a carnal and temporal relief for his mouth? Or is this communicating something more to us? You see, certainly it is no small thing that Jesus was committed to saying this in order that the Scriptures be fulfilled. And we can be clear that he was obedient even at this point to death of all the father had given him to do. But in addition to this, I believe this statement of I thirst is revealing to us the priority of Jesus Christ. Consider these scriptures with me just for a moment. Listen to these things and think about them in relationship to the scene that's unfolding before us here. Matthew 27, verse 46, the, another gospel account, Matthew's account of Jesus' death on the cross. We find this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's the picture. Here's Jesus on the cross crying out. There's this feeling, this sensation of forsakenness by the Father. And we find out from Psalm 143 and verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you. Like a parched land. Now am I out of my mind in seeing a relationship between these expressions? Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with outstretched hands, my soul is thirsting for you, God. A longing for God. Thirsting. Psalm 63 and verse 1, we find this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you suppose there's any drier or more weary land than having a sense in your soul of being forsaken by God, thirsting for God, the living God? And something we often may quote as an encouragement to ourselves in the midst of discouragement and depression from Psalm 42. Just hear these words in light of what Jesus is enduring in our text. Psalm 42. Consider these things with me. Psalm 42, we'll read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11 of Psalm number 42. 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Pause. Let your God deliver you. Let your God bring you and save you from this death. Is that not what they said to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let your God deliver you. He says, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs of praise a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Is that a fitting expression for the thirsting of Jesus Christ, who told us in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied again from Isaiah 53. This righteous servant shall see and be satisfied. Jesus thirsting to be satisfied with righteousness, obedience to the father, even as he dies, thirsting for God, the living God. And Jesus told his own disciples in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus sees the work is finished and he's at the very precipice of accomplishing everything. Here's righteousness. Here is accomplishing the work of my father. It's within sight. It's within grasp. I'm thirsting for it. That's what he's here for. And knowing that all was now finished, the cry of Jesus physical frame is a perfect reflection to us of his ongoing commitment to and desire for his father. And so we find in verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Here he is saying, I thirst as he hangs there dying. And they take a branch and a sponge and soak it in this sour wine, this vinegar and put it to his lips. Now, some might hear this and consider it to be nothing more than cruelty on the part of the soldiers. Have you ever gotten a drink of something sour or bitter when you were extremely thirsty and the recoiling that takes place at that experience? Indeed, it was cruel. And yet again, we see God's sovereign hand over wicked men. Is it ironic? Is it just a coincidence that what they happen to have there is sour wine, exactly like God said would happen back in Psalm 69? Is it just a coincidence that they would do this? Or is there something more going on here? 
You see, he's crying out for God. The Lord Jesus Christ thirsting for God and they give him sour wine instead. Now I ask, what was the ordained purpose behind this cruel act? Is there more than just simply Romans being cruel to Jesus as he died? Did the wetting of his lips by this sour wine serve any greater cause than simply them mocking and tormenting him? Do you suppose there's anything else that the Lord Jesus Christ was committed to doing before he died? Well, I believe that there was. We find in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here, finally, at last, we see the culmination of all that Jesus came into the world to do. He whose life has been up until this point so full of gracious words, of encouraging words, of words of life. Do you remember? That's what they said. That's what Peter said in John 6, whenever all the all these followers of his who were not really loving him, they were coming for their stomachs to be filled. They depart when he says no one can come to me unless the father draws them. They don't like that doctrine, so they leave. Jesus turns to the twelve and says, will you depart also? Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. The one who speaks the words of life here offers an earth shattering proclamation. It is finished. And I'm arguing that Jesus asks for this sip, this drink, this quenching of his mouth, not to be delivered from the, the agonies of the physical pain, but that he might project his voice with authority through wetted lips and a wetted throat, that it is finished indeed. The one with the words of life. Saying that and without taking away from the necessity of that scripture being fulfilled, do we suppose that Jesus had a special interest in the liquid on his tongue, lips and throat, helping him to make that pronouncement? Think on it this way. Think of the encouragement, the certainty and confidence that should give us. Jesus is the one who spoke the world into existence. We find in John 1 that he was beginning, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made apart from what he made. This one, Jesus was the one who said, Let there be light, and then there was light. That one says, It is finished. How certain do you think that is? Jesus, who looks at the storm and says, Peace be still, is the same one who says, It is finished. How confident can you be in that proclamation? Jesus is the one who we find in Hebrews upholds all things by the word of his power. He's upholding the universe with a mere word. Jesus, the one who when they come to arrest him, he just proclaims his name. I am. And they're thrown on the ground. This one who has all authority on his lips says it's finished. How confident can we be in that proclamation? It is finished. Indeed, I want to move in a moment towards closing this message. But before we do that, I want to challenge us a little bit. There are many people who view Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as simply a martyr for a cause. Perhaps you've seen, for example, the movie. I thought of this in passing, though it falls infinitely short of what Jesus is actually doing here. But in the Mel Gibson movie Braveheart, you see William Wallace there once he's finally been captured and they string him up and they're stretching him out and they've castrated him and they're about to kill him and cut his head off. And he works up this, this ability in his throat for one final thing to say and he cries out, Freedom! Throughout the land. Now what a 
encouraging, motivational thing. There's a martyr dying for a cause. He's promoting a cause. People see his death and they're rallied up. The forces are rallied. He's just a a message, an example to those who might pursue the same thing. Is that what Jesus is doing? When he cries out, it is finished. Is it merely an encouragement to us to go the way he went? Or is there something actually being accomplished? He said his work, his will is to do the work of him who sent him. What work was it? You see, he came and died as the savior of the world, of his people. I remember again from Isaiah 53 and verse 12. This we sang, finished the victory cry. Remember we sang that line, finished is a victory cry. Isaiah 53, 12 says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's the point. He says that he shall pour out his soul to death, being numbered with transgressors. And yet I'm going to divide a portion with him. He will have spoils with the strong spoils of war. You don't get the spoils of war unless you're the victor. Those who are conquered and defeated don't get the spoils of war. Jesus does. He wasn't only as a martyr, but accomplishing something. His father had given him to do. So when he says to you and I, it is finished, that means that it has been accomplished. The plan of salvation, which I told you already was formed in the mind of God before the world was, has been realized in the life and death of Jesus Christ. And so I ask as we move to close, is there anything left for you to do? Is there anything left for you to add to what Jesus did? Has it really been finished? Is there anything more that needs to be done than what he did? How does that meet with you? If you're here today and you've never yet been born again, how does it meet with you to hear Jesus said it's really finished? Being reconciled to God is perfectly accomplished because of what he did. What does that cause you to think? What does that cause you to do? Does it leave you asking, what must I do? The simple call is to believe that it's been finished. Believe, repent of your unbelief and turning from God and turn to God and believe. And yet, how does this meet with you as a Christian, as Christian people in the midst of your own sin and your own failure, difficulties in your marriages, difficulties with your children? How does this it is finished meet with you? Do you think your failures and your sin could ever undo what he's done? How prone and tempted are we to think because of my sin, he no longer loves me? You need to hear echoing through your soul. It is finished and your sin cannot undo it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ because it's done. It is truly finished. And I'll go further. How does this statement of completion meet with us as it relates to evangelism? Do you and I, do we really have a message which we are able to proclaim to a godless society full of ruin and depravity and evil? It's not subject to fail. When you look out there and you see evil in high places, do you say, what hope do we have of dealing with those things? Jesus said it's finished. It's completely done. And what we're given to do as his people is to go forth and tell them we have good news to tell you. Jesus really did accomplish it. And he accomplished it once and forever. It is finished once and for all. That means your sins are gone completely forever. The devil's defeated and destroyed and there's therefore now no condemnation to anyone in Christ. Why not? 
because that condemnation has been swallowed up in his death. There really is nothing left to do. But believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who has finished it all. And you will be saved. And as a Christian, go forth in this name. This one. Trusting that He finished it indeed. He gave up His Spirit. He really died. And this is the center of every hope that we have. That's exactly what we deserve to endure. And yet He endured it for us that we might live. And that's what we're going on to consider together at this table. That He, He who thirsted, has poured out His blood that we might drink of Him and be forgiven and loved and have His blood cover us in our own sin. And so with that, I'll make a final appeal to you not in Christ. If this message, if the proclamation it's finished is not enough to compel you to come to Jesus, nothing ever will. This Jesus says, come. He doesn't say, ask me whether or not you think this or that. He says, come to me. The one who finished it says, come to me. And if you're in Christ, tell the devil to shut his mouth whenever he accuses you. Jesus said, it's finished. I'm going to trust his word. And I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened by this. You know, even his own disciples, even John, who heard this, still was with Peter out there fishing after his death and after he was buried before he visited them. I pray that encourages your soul and if you are lost, that you would come to Jesus and live. Come and drink from the One who thirsted for you. That I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Word is good. Your faithfulness, O God, goes beyond any and all expectation we could possibly have. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace by your spirit to believe this proclamation, to rest in it, to go forth triumphantly, victoriously, confidently as we proclaim the gospel to those around us. Father, please bless us now as we gather around your table. Give us sweet fellowship one with another as we remember the death of Jesus that has given us life. And I ask this in his name. Amen.